What's up, everybody? This is Ryan Staley, and you are listening to the Sales and Marketing Built Freedom Podcast, where we share with you the underground ninja skills and tactics the top sales and marketing leaders are using to create financial and lifestyle freedom. And the question that everybody is asking is, how do I create financial and lifestyle freedom for me? That is the question, and this show is the answer. All right. Welcome, everybody. This is Ryan Staley with the Sales and Marketing Bill Freedom Podcast. I have a very special guest on today, Rand Fishkin. Rand, welcome, man. Awesome to have you on. Yeah, great to be here, Ryan. Thanks for having me. Yeah. And you know, it's funny. We're almost, I think we literally are, are twinning when it comes to mics. I didn't even realize it, but your mic, mine's on a screen. So anyways, for those of you that don't know Rand, Rand's a pretty cool guy, man. He's, he's got a diverse background, so I'm really excited to get into his story. Uh, he's a former CEO of Moz. He wrote a book called Lost and Founders, right? And at the same time, he is now the co-founder and CEO of SparkToro. So I was really intrigued to meet this guy. He has uh, He's come up in three different Three different ways I've heard about you uh, from three totally different sources. I'm like, I got to have this guy on the show. I think there's so much value you can provide to the audience. So I'm happy to have you on, man. Thanks for coming on and uh, excited to get into this. So can you tell everybody just a little bit about you and kind of like how you got to this point, what happened? And um, and let's let's have everybody hear your story. Sure. Yeah. So um, most folks who who know me or know of me, um, from kind of the past couple of decades, uh, I started a company called Moz, which is in the SEO software space. Um, that that company grew very rapidly. I was the CEO for a long time. Um, you know, grew from a couple employees, just my mom and I, uh, as co-founders, into a you know fifty million dollar a year venture backed business. Raised a bunch of money. Um, had a lot of a lot of traffic around SEO as, as SEO was growing, Moz was kind of one of the biggest places that many, many folks uh, learned the practice. I left that company almost three years ago and started a new one called SparkToro. And at the same time, yeah, uh, wrote and published, whoops, <laughs> this book, <laughs> Lost and Founder. And uh, that, yeah, that has brought a lot of uh, folks in the entrepreneurial world, folks who are building businesses in, you know, everything from SaaS to B2B to B2C to me. I, uh, we raised a very unique round of funding for SparkToro after Moz. I was not interested or excited about the venture path again. Um, I think that the incentives and the model are, are pretty broken um, and messed up for a variety of ways, both, you know, sort of macro and micro. Uh, and so we designed our own fundraising round. We're an LLC that pays dividends, which is nice. very unique in the yeah. software space. But uh, we launched our product, uh, which is which is SparkToro, the, the the audience research tool, uh, in April of 2020, aka worst time to launch in 100 years. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, had a had a tough kind of first few months. We did our pre-launch in February and then into April, May. Um, but since then, you know, have kind of seen that, I think what a lot of folks in in our fields have experienced, which is kind of that K-shaped recovery where, you know, the bottom half of the economic pie, at least in the United States, is is really, really still struggling. But the top half um, and, and certainly everything in information technology is doing quite well. So we've had a, a really good last couple of quarters and um, yeah, about 
a little over 500 customers, about 30,000 people using the free version of the tool. And it's it's been an exciting journey. It's kind of cool to be able to be like, oh, look, I can do it again. <laughs> well, I didn't know. I mean, I would have put this in the title, but you told me you co-founded Moz with your mom. I didn't know that. That's pretty cool. I, I think like that. I I don't think I've ever heard that. I've heard about so many different founders. And like, how did that happen? Like, how did you say, like, hey, Ma, like, you know, I think of Will Ferrell and like Wedding Crashers is like, Mom, need more meatloaf, right? But like, obviously, it didn't happen that way. So, so how did it happen, Matt? <laughs> how, yeah, how did you uh, with your mom? So I dropped out of college in 2001, and my mom, Jillian, had been running a sort of, you know, one woman small business marketing agency in the Seattle area for 20 years since 1981 when when um, she started. And so I basically had been doing some web design in high school and in college. Her clients started needing, you know, web design um, and web production as, as broadband internet was kind of penetrating more and more of the United States. And that uh, turned into... A, a kind of partnership. And then we struggled financially really badly for a few years. Uh, we, in 2003, I think it was, couldn't afford to pay our subcontractors for SEO. So we had basically, you know, taken on contracts to build websites for our clients. And we, we said, oh, and we'll also do, you know, the SEO for them. And we had subcontractors who helped us do that work. And we did not have the money to pay them due to you know, our bills and our poor financial choices. Uh, and so I had to learn SEO and do it myself because we had promised that work. And that um, that is how I started the blog SEO Moz, which became the company Moz. And then, uh, you know, in later years, we, we built some software that we were using internally. I wanted to share that software. We ended up accidentally building a software as a service business. And, you know, within six months of launching that, it was like a PayPal 30 buck a month subscription you know, to get access. Uh, within six months of launching that, it was doing as much revenue as our consulting business. And we were like, oh, this, this is the thing. This is exciting. And that's when you know, some investors started reaching out. We, we raised some money. I did the whole you know, fly to Silicon Valley for years and pitch up and down Sand Hill Road. Yeah. And that, I think, was a very good experience. It helped me, helped me figure out what I did and didn't want to do with the later parts of my life okay that's good well yeah man you gotta i mean in sales and i don't, I don't even know if i could swear but i'm gonna do it we, we call it eating the shit sandwich when you first mm. start right it's like those those character building moments that you have throughout your career throughout your job where it sucks at the time but later on you're like i learned so much from that so oh, yeah so and by the way sorry for adding the s to, to your book lost and found i thought it was lost and founders i apologize so I assume that was kind of what led to, to the book, which for those of you that don't know about it, it's really cool. It talks about both sides of kind of the VC world and not just like, because everybody always talks about like how glamorous it is. You hear about these billion dollar unicorn valuations. And, you know, I, I mean, like I told you before, I'm part of the Revenue Collective and they really watch out for sales leaders because on, on average now that the tenure is like 16 months, that's the mm -hmm. average tenure. And there's a lot of danger in that in the VC world. And so, you know, I thought it'd be great for to have you on because of some of the things that you learn being on the inside of that. But then I also did some research. Check this out, Rand. I saw that like the success rate was, and I, I read some of this in your book too, but it was like 5% or 
are really, really successful. And I was even reading stats that are like one in only one in 2000 companies are like truly hit it when it comes to the VC model. I mean, can you talk a little bit about that and just what people should look for, what they should watch out for, things along those lines? Yeah, yeah. So this is, um, it's the whole ecosystem, Ryan, is really messed up. It is, it is very bizarre. A lot of it is um, prestige focused. A lot of it is, you know, about basically marketing the idea that if you are a serious founder, if you're someone who's, who's really any good at this, you should pursue venture because that's, that's kind of playing with the big kids. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's all the, everyone else, everyone who's not building a venture backed or hyper growth focused business, venture capitalists and the media ecosystem and technology ecosystem that they've built up over the last 40 years around that environment uh, pejoratively uses terms like lifestyle business to dismiss anyone who's building, you know, essentially a, a uh, company that is designed to have healthy, profitable, long-term growth, survive for a long period of time, you know, mm -hmm. be successful for its founders and employees and customers instead of its investors. Um, and that is pretty effective brainwashing media manipulation, right? So just, just like you can see in, you know, all sorts of environments around, you know, whatever topic you want, you know, climate change or politics or what have you, right? There, there's this sort of invested interests who, for financial reasons, primarily want an environment to exist in a certain way. And venture capital is no different. So in the 60s and 70s, a bunch of rich people lobby the U.S. government to get capital gains tax, right? The 15%, the 18% um, applied to uh, investments in small, private, new businesses that they hold for five years or more. And that's essentially what creates the asset class venture capital. And so now, you know, the basically, if, if venture investors were to apply their model with ordinary income tax rates, right, the tax rates that everybody play, pays on their salary, the model wouldn't work at all. Like it, it, it just, it would never beat the market, really? the stock market returns. But because they've got capital gains, right? They, they are able to, at least the top, to your point, the top 5% of venture funds, sometimes 10% some years, are able to beat market returns. And so they go out and pitch their limited partners and say like, you know, put money into us. And then they come to people like you and I, right? And all of, all of you who are listening, right? And they say, hey, we want to invest whatever, you know, early stage, maybe a million, couple million dollars, uh, later stages, five, 10, I think Maz's largest round was 18 million. Um, and when we do that, our goal is to basically make, a, you know, 100, 200 investments like that. And over the next seven to 10 years, we expect that 95 out of those 100 will die, go under, bring us nothing. Um, two or three will you know, make some, some real money, maybe five to 10 times their investment. And then one or two will really make the fund. One or two will be whatever it is, you know, Airbnb, Google, Amazon, Facebook. Um, <laughs> let's, let's ignore Uber and WeWork for the time being, even though they were the primary examples in the last world, right? And so what you get is essentially a massive furthering of income inequality because you, you know, you, you take a few winners, they make billions, and then you have thousands and thousands of losers 
that's not great for a macroeconomic environment. It's not great for a political situation, obviously. It's not great for you know monopoly power and technology, which all of us who are beholden to Google and Facebook can sort of feel that uh, pretty heavily. And so, yeah, I, I try and describe a lot of these incentives along with hopefully an interesting story about what it's like to go through that, which it's not all bad. Like right. when we, you know, when we were growing fast, we were a darling. Like Moz was a darling for seven, eight years in its world, um, and yeah, those those things uh, those things change. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so let's talk. And I want to get a little bit more about. I want to get a little bit more into you with with like your ninja skill, and and I think there's some really cool things that you could add value to the audience that's that's listening right now. Um, before we get into that, though, I guess, like, what are your top three things to be careful of if you are a founder or if you work for a company that is evaluating VC funds right now? Like, what are the top three things that you would be careful of or say, like, hey, these are these are things you really got to look into? Yeah. So, I mean, first off, I'd be aware of the fact that it is an extremely high risk model. So essentially... You know, the um, the average uh, small business in the United States has a five-year sort of survival rate of mm -hmm. around 50, 60%, um, higher or lower in some categories. Restaurants, for example, are, are closer to 50%. Consulting businesses are as high as like 75, 80%. Mm -hmm. So uh, venture-backed technology businesses, the five-year survival rate is a little under 15%. Come on, really? Yeah. Under 15%? I mean, no surprise, right? The whole model is invest in 100 companies and you want... Yeah, I guess it makes sense. <laughs> right, like if you and I are, are putting together a venture capital firm, we cannot go to 50 board meetings every month. Right. That's freaking impossible. So we need a bunch of our investments to die and go away over time, right? And and most of those, you know, some of them are going to be aqua hires. Some of them are just going to be complete failures. Some of them are going to sell for like, 1x revenue, you, you, you know, you, you yeah. get the idea, right? But so it's not all complete failures, but a ton of them are, right? A, a huge number just go out of business, not successful. Um, and then uh, that risk model, it all, I think the, the biggest misperception is that many folks assume that if they reach that next stage, right? Let's say you're doing, I don't know, a few hundred thousand or a few million in revenue right now, you're feeling great about it. And you can see that growth ramp. You can see how if you took $10 million and you put it, put that money to work, you could quickly get to $10 million, $20 million, $30 million, $50 million in revenue. That's exactly what Moz did, right? It took a bunch of money and rapidly grew to eh, $40, $50 million in revenue. But then the growth rate plateaued. It got much more difficult to grow after that time, more competition entered the market, all sorts of things. Mo Moz made some bad strategic decisions, including some bad ones I made, which, which are detailed in the book too. But when that happens, I think the presumption from a bunch of founders is, well, hey, a profitable growing business at $50 million in revenue is still an amazing thing, and I would love to get there. No, you would not. <laughs> not if you take venture. And I think this is the most misunderstood portion of the equation, which is that when you reach those, you know, intermediate sizes, if you are not growing at the correct rate and your sort of metrics don't look perfect, to, it's not even to your investors, but, but sort of to your market, 
Right. Uh, things get really bad for you, your team, your employees, and your customers. And that is because, you know, Moz is maybe growing at, I don't know, 7 8% year over year or something like that. It is profitable. Maybe it's kicking off 4 or $5 million a year in cash. And that um, is very frustrating because it doesn't have someone who's obviously going to acquire it and the acquisition price is not going to be all that great. And, um, and so it keeps trying to find growth. When it goes and pitches employees, right, it, it wants to say like, hey, this is, this is going to be an exciting opportunity for you. Except, uh, you know, other than cash and maybe if you like the mission and what the company's doing, right, the, the promise of the stock growth is not so much there anymore. And mm-hmm. so it gets really, really tough. All sorts of incentives get messed up around those things. And yeah, the stuck in the middle, I think, problem is not talked about very often. And it's not well understood by people who are thinking about raising venture, right? They can see the next two or three or four years they can't see the next 10. Ah, okay, yeah. And that's that's the missing portion. So that's that's the second big thing I'd, I'd warn you against. And then the third one is, I think most people who try to raise venture don't consider that there are alternatives. They, they think venture is the only asset class that can be appropriate or that can help them grow. And so they don't look for creative other... Uh, ways of funding their potential growth that might be more, more of a good fit. Just like rest, less risky, right? You know, so that you don't have to give up so much control of the company. Or, um, I mean, well, why don't you walk me through it before I, I start going down a uh, a path? So, what would you say? What do you mean by that exactly? Well, so uh, you let's some see. examples, like types of yeah. Yeah. So, so types of funding include, you know, there are revenue-based loans out there now. So if you are doing significant revenue, a revenue-based loan can be a relatively exciting way to go. Um, there are lots of credit opportunities, right? From not, not just banks, but more creative types of folks. Uh, one of my favorite examples of this and, and one of the most interesting funding opportunities, in my opinion, is a company up in Canada called ClearBank, which is in e-commerce. They do super creative kinds of um, funding for a ton of what I'd call mid-market to early enterprise level um, uh, uh, consumer brands. Like okay. a lot of the consumer internet brands that you've heard of, they, they've, they've done funding for. Um, and in better, you know, um, I want to say better ways. Let's see, more founder-friendly, more employee-friendly, more customer-friendly okay. ways than the venture model. There's um, crowdfunding, which I think is interesting for a lot of uh, folks. You, I, I have a friend, um, Dan Shapiro, here in Seattle. He later raised uh, Venture, but they initially did crowdfunding for their company, Glowforge, built their own crowdfunding model, didn't end up using like Kickstarter or something like that. Hugely successful. Tons of folks that I know in like video game world have done that very successfully. Right. Lots of folks in uh, consumer businesses too. And, and in B2B, you know, I, I tell folks that you can design your own investment round. We talked to an attorney, um, Joe Wallen here in Seattle, who, who's behind some of uh, Washington State's crowdfunding laws. We, we talked to Joe. We basically, on a whiteboard, you know, put together our own funding structure that we liked. We found investors who were interested in it. We pitched them. We had a very high success rate for that. Um, I, I think there's a lot of interest in more unique kinds of funding out there. And then 
if if none of those are a match, there are venture style but better structure, in my opinion, uh, opportunities. So I'd look at places like Village Capital, um, Indie.vc, um, let's see, Tiny Seed Fund. Uh, there's there's a, a few uh, Tiny Seed. Um, full disclosure, uh, my wife and I are, are small investors in that. Okay, cool. No. That's, I mean, that, that's good. So there's, there's, I mean, like, so I came in from the PE world. Uh, I was in the private equity. I worked for a company that was private equity acquired. And, and like, that's one of the things that I, I focus on when I work with people when they're selling to different markets is really understand like the ownership structure. You know, there's yeah. a massive difference if it's VC versus if it's private equity is in the fifth year of the cycle you know, the, the decisions they're going to make are more short-term versus longer-term, right? So there's a lot of variables and factors. So I think that's it's really, really smart that, that you're saying like, hey, evaluate all the options. Don't just assume because that's what you've been conditioned to do, that that's the only way to go. So let's shift gears a little bit. Let's talk about research. So, you know, I, I told you before when we, we chatted briefly, like I, I'm a nut about research and being prepared. And I, I think there's some really antiquated ideas that are out there based on the tools that are available to really get to intimately know your customers and what they need and where they live and what they want to do. So yeah. I'd love to hear, you know, just kind of your take on it because I know you you've, you mentioned it even before you started this company about research in your book quite a bit. And so can you just talk about that? I mean, would you say that's kind of like your ninja skill in terms of understanding that or what? Yeah. So I, um, I, I had a lot of frustration like prior to to starting SparkToro in terms of um, understanding audiences at scale. So not not necessarily exclusively my customers, like Mazda's customers, but mm -hmm. the uh, potential future customers and the market as a whole, right? What do people who have this particular word or phrase in their um, bio or their job title or who work at these kinds of companies or who talk about these things online or whatever, use certain hashtags, follow certain groups of people. Like what are their attributes and what does that mean for how I should be uh, creating and marketing content and describing my product and um, running my ad campaigns? What does it mean for where I should do all those things? What does it mean for um, how I should be designing my product. Mm -hmm. Frankly, yeah, right now, I've, I feel like many, many businesses of all sizes do product design and development, uh, positioning, marketing, and sales without that knowledge. And it it just hobbles their opportunity, right? Because if <laughs> it's sort of like, you know, it's like aiming at a target. You you pull out your bow and arrow and you're like, okay, where, where am I shooting? I don't really know. Okay, I'll just let it go. <laughs> well, maybe yeah. I'll hit something. It, oh, hey, look, it's a big target. So I sometimes hit it. <laughs> it is, yeah, I mean, that's the number one thing I focus on when I work with companies is like getting crystal clear because you'll see companies that have, mm, I don't know, maybe like 30% of their revenue based on their top five to 10 customers. And instead of just going out to a broad market and saying like, hey, I'm going to approach these people. I'm like, look at your top five to 10 customers, get to know like every single detail about them intimately and then target like focused targeting on those exact people so that you can expand and replicate that top 30% that pay you the most that you could serve at the highest level. Yeah. 
And it works really well to scale without outside investments. And so that's one of the things that I try and help people with as well. So keep going, man. I didn't mean to interrupt you. I'm just really no, happy. That's exactly, I, I think that's a, that's a great philosophy. And there, there's sort of, there's almost two approaches to this, right? You could say, I want to better understand my, you know, top few customers and what makes them tick and what makes our product resonant for them. And then we're going to replicate that so that we can find more people like them and, and you know, essentially go reach those folks, um, have, you know, similar kinds of success uh, uh, getting those people on board. And then there's the alternative, right? The alternative being, well, what if we go out and find a big, uh, you know, go target a big market? And I think if you're, you know, if you're software as a service and you are, aiming for uh, having, you know, your revenue spread out among a large number of customers, which mm -hmm. is a very, you know, that's like a, a great way to play it for kind of long-term safety reasons. So that if your top two customers leave next week, you're fine. Like nothing, you know, it doesn't hurt you at all. That is another methodology. So you can, you can go about both of these ways and have success. I think the key is that research and understanding element. Like I deeply understand what makes my customers, my audience, my market tick. I know where I can reach them. I know what resonates with them. That uh, that really works. So how would you say then, like if a company wants to scale or understand a market beautifully, like what are the core concepts that are underneath Spark Toro? Okay. That, well, you obviously created because you saw a problem. So what, what problem is that solving? And then like, how can, how can people leverage it? And I want you to think about it kind of through the lens of, it could be from starting a company or it can be also like some of the other things, like there's a lot of folks on LinkedIn that have podcasts that want to expand that, or there's people that want to create content for LinkedIn and their brand or just for customers or whatever to be re become relevant. So what do you think through those kind of lenses would be the most valuable way or, or um, kind of to approach it if you will? Yeah, I think I think the best way to start with any type of audience research or market research is to have a core problem that you are trying to solve. And you know that if you get the answer to that problem, you will have strategic decisions and tactical decisions that you can make better, right? That will improve the business. What I don't what I don't totally love is going in with no questions in mind and no specific kind of changes that you're willing or ready to make, um, and then just learning a whole bunch about a market uh, and trying to figure out where you apply it. I think that's fine if you're very early stage or if you're trying to do like R&D for new product. I don't think it's so great if you've already got a business that's selling successfully to customers. And you know, if, you're, if your question is, how do we improve conversion rates? Right. Okay, well, that's one kind of research. That kind of research is... Let's go talk to our existing customers who bought the product and who love it. And let's ask them, why did you choose us over other solutions? And how do you talk about us when you, you know, if you ever re refer people to us? And uh, what are the words and phrases you would use to describe our product? What's the value you get from it? And then you take the things that you see, right? If you see the same phrase, words and uh, um sentences, right? Descriptions over and over again from many of your best customers. Take that content and put it on your 
you know, conversion pages, put it in your emails, put it in your marketing, put it in your advertising, because clearly that's what resonated with the people who bought you and got value from you. Um, I, we worked with Spartoro. So when we launched in April, you know, where our, our conversion rates were somewhere between mediocre and truly crappy. Um, over the summer, we worked with a, with an agency called Conversion Rate Experts out of the UK. Um, and the two of the founders are investors in SparkToros, and I had worked with them previously at Moz. And I'm like, Ben, Carl, what is going on here? Like, you, you guys got to help me. And they're like, okay, work with this guy, Eamon, on our team. He's going to help you out. You know, they're relatively expensive to work with, but we were like, it's worth it. So we we basically ran two surveys, one to our existing customers and one to our um uh, audience of sort of people who'd signed up for our beta list and our email list and product updates and all that kind of stuff. And we ran these two surveys and we asked people questions just like the one I, ones I described, like, you know, what stopped you from subscribing or, you know, what's a thing that would make you want the product? And then we looked at all the answers. Um, Eamon ran an analysis. We, we looked at the words and phrases people were using and how they were describing the product and how they were getting value from it changed up our landing page. Like our landing page used to say something like, if you went to the SparkToro homepage, mm -hmm. it said something like um, audience intelligence for everyone, right? And now it says instantly discover what your audience reads, watches, listens to, and follows. Mm -hmm. And that sentence alone, I think has really like dramatically changed the number of people and the percent of people who make it through the process and know what to expect. If I hear instantly discover what your audience reads, watches, listens to, and follows, I expect that when I type in, you know, whatever, my audience uses these words in their profile, um, writer or, or, or golfer or product manager or whatever it is, mm -hmm. and then I hit the discover button, I will get a list of what golfers read and what they watch and what they listen to and what they follow. And that's exactly what you get in SparkToro. So... Um, that, you know, I think that process can be really transformative for a company on that research side, but there's other kinds of research too, right? Like you might say, my problem is not conversions. My problem is traffic. Mm -hmm. I am not getting the people, the audience that I want to come to our website and see our offering and understand what we do and care about it at all. So therefore I have an awareness and branding problem. Help me solve that. Right. And that could be a you need to learn more about this audience and what they care about and what they talk about and what you know hashtags they use and what podcasts they listen to and who they follow on social accounts. That's the kind of data that SparkToro provides, right? We're sort of higher up in the funnel of the help people understand an audience in that way. Okay, yeah. And that's that's truly fantastic because that's one of the core concepts. And I think there's, I did a, a podcast about this uh, on Dream 100 and that's related, I think, to the like the customer dream 100. You could leverage that because you know the associations. And we actually got in, in a prior life got a 20 million dollar deal because we found out and got referred to a group or association that a certain company participated in. Right. Mm. So there's that the revenue side on the customer, but then there's also, especially with all the distribution channels of social, the the expansion of influence too, right? Which I'm sure people leverage that all the time for traffic. Yeah. I mean, I think this is, you know, potentially huge. I see, I'd say a lot of companies, especially in B2B, who feel like they have a, I don't know exactly what to call it, like a sales funnel challenge that sits at the bottom of the funnel 
but in fact, it's more at the middle and, and upper stages. Like people don't totally get what problem they are supposed to associate with that company's solution. Mm. And so even though lots of people are having the problem that your company solves, you are not top of mind for when people have that problem, they come to you to solve it. And so, you know, what's been very successful for me, both at Moz and, and now at SparkToro, is using, you know, what I essentially call the practice of digital PR, right? Going to people who have channels and audiences, like, like your audience, Ryan, mm-hmm. right? Like going and talking to people and saying, oh, okay, well, here's this problem, here's this challenge uh, that's whatever, poorly understood or misunderstood, or I have interesting ways of solving that, or I've seen a bunch of examples, whatever. I can add value to that conversation. And then when people, whatever, you know, maybe they maybe they listen to this live stream and they're like, oh, okay, yeah, that Rand guy seems interesting. <laughs> and then two weeks from now, they listen to another podcast and someone mentioned SparkToro. Like, like you said, yeah. you heard about SparkToro three times and then you were like, geez, that sounds really interesting. I should invite that Rand guy on. Yeah, that's exactly right. It's like that that's that that top of the funnel brand building to associate a, oh, here's a person or entity or tool or product that can solve this problem or that's in this space. I should consider it next time I have that problem. Uh, that has been really transformative for me. And so essentially what SparkToro does is help you find all those places to go do that. Oh, that's awesome. And I got to dive deeper in the tool. I've leveraged that. I, I, I kind of mentioned Justin Welsh mentions that he's he's gotten over. I'll tell you this too. I think twenty three or twenty four million organic views on LinkedIn last year, wow. uh, based on his publishing. And I remember him highlighting. He's like, "Hey, the Spark Toro tool is really cool in understanding like what your audience wants to hear and, and what's important to them and what resonates with them." So uh, I thought that was really cool. And so, all right, I'm going to bring you down, break down to rapid fire because we're just about up on time. I got three quick questions for you, okay? And they're all about revenue growth. And so I love to have your marketing view of, and founder, you know, founder view of how to kind of approach this, okay? So what would you say would be the number one way that you would approach increasing the amount of customers based on your expertise and your skill? Ooh, I would say go find... um, marketing channels that are interesting to you, like you personally resonate with them, your customers are actually there, your audience is there, and you can provide unique value in those places. So if, if, you know, maybe that's events and public speaking, maybe that's uh, podcasts, maybe that is uh, video and YouTube, maybe it is blogging, maybe it's Twitter, maybe it's LinkedIn, maybe it's Instagram, whatever it is, Find the intersection of those three things and and you will have your marketing channel that you should invest in. Okay. So I think that's that's great advice because then you truly understand the channel, right? So you know how to talk on it. Like I see my kids watching YouTube crap all the time and I'm not saying YouTube is crap. I'm just saying they watch low quality content. Um, and so, so I'm not one of, I, I wouldn't say I'm really good or making a TikTok video. You know, I, I wouldn't say that would be my core competence. Exactly. I don't get TikTok. Therefore, I'm probably not going to be a great marketer on it. <laughs> I get LinkedIn. Therefore, I'm a pretty decent marketer on LinkedIn. Yeah. Okay. So number two, how do you leverage your, your same like skills or expertise? How would you approach um, expand, uh, expanding the amount that every customer spends with you? increasing the amount. Yeah, I think this is a, um, there's sort of two big levers and then a bunch of little ones that I think you can pull. Um, the first big one is uh, 
pricing and positioning of pricing, mm -hmm. right? So when someone is introduced to your product, they have to conceptualize how they compare the solution you provide to other potential solutions in the market. And you can set the stage for that in how you talk about your product, uh, what words and phrases you use, what comes up in the you know Google keyword rankings when they search for alternatives, who you position as your competition, all that kind of stuff. If if you are trying to to drive that up a lot, uh, I would focus on making yourself in the competitive set with the people who don't provide public pricing, mm. right? Because then then it's a pain in the butt to go get the pricing, and so your customer is sort of like, well, okay, I guess I'll have sales conversations with maybe a couple of these, and we'll figure something out. But generally speaking. You know, you can you can win in a few of those places, especially if you're willing to be public about your pricing and nobody else in the field is. Oh, okay. um, second one, the second big lever uh, I think you can pull is kind of what I'd call the like, once someone is a customer, keep providing them more and more value. One of my favorite uh, products that does this is like mention tools, right? So I get, you know, yeah. I have my social listening or whatever. It emails me every day. And tells me like, here's who talked about SparkToro on LinkedIn and Reddit and Twitter and whatever and on the web. And here's a bunch of mentions. And we found 50 more mentions that are missing from your alert because you're not paying the right amount. No. Ah, that's pretty good, right? Like, yeah. I, I, if I want more of this thing that's obviously valuable to me, I, I should go upgrade, right? Yeah. Um, I think that's, a, that's the other big lever. And it's value-based. Right. If I want more of the thing that's already giving me value, um, I can do that. So uh, I, I like those two a lot. Uh, and then there's yeah, tons of other little levers. But for rapid fire round, those two are good. Okay. And then I, I got one last one. So um, the last but not least would be how do you increase the frequency in which your customer buys? Frequency buy. So this is a um, this is a tough one. I think I think that is uh, driven by both the need and the kind of, um, what, do, what do I want to call that? Like the addictive property of your uh, value solution, mm -hmm. right? So um, a good, you know, a good potential example of this is, um, and again, I think there's kind of two levers I talk about. One is the proactive, right? So you remind the person that they have the problem. The mm -hmm. alert comes to me. It tells me that there's alerts missing. So I need to go and in, invest in it more, right? There's that like proactive element. And right. then there's the passive one, which is the, hey, this thing that is kind of always on and running in the background for you and your team, or it's, it's providing value while you sleep. Mm -hmm. And so you don't need to be active to be getting value from our product. Being able to prove that is a more latent underlying thing. You know, it's sort of like... um Oh, you're using Slack. Like, even if I'm not the one using Slack, my team's using Slack. So, of course, I'm paying for it because it's like it's running in the background and helping our operations. Um, Zoom is another good example. Like, okay, well, it, it's this thing. I, I don't have a video meeting this week, but I, I'll probably have like three next week. So, I, I guess I need it. You know, I got I to gotta keep it on. Um, and so, I think about those levers, the proactive and the latent lever and and which one you can better pull which one applies to your product that's awesome i love it man you, you have such a unique view on things and that's why i love having people like you on the show because you 
you approach things so differently than a sales mindset um, in terms of how you, you look at it and your model of approaching things. So I love it, man. So how, how do people find more about you? How do they find more about SparkToro? Uh, sure. Can you share with everybody? Yeah, yeah. Um, so I am on LinkedIn and fairly active there, Rand Fishkin. Uh, I'm most active on Twitter where I'm at Rand Fish, uh, but that, that includes a lot of not work-related stuff. So if you like uh, pictures of pasta and uh, me complaining about politics, that you will find that on Twitter too. Uh, and then uh, I blog usually once a week on sparktoro.com slash blog. That's fairly popular with a lot of folks in sort of um, marketing world. And then uh, if you want to try SparkToro, it is, we have forever free accounts. So I mentioned like 30,000 people just have a forever free account on SparkToro. You can run a bunch of searches every month. Tons of people get value from just that. If you want to try it out, I'd encourage you to, to do that. There's a bunch of different ways to search what, uh, the information that we have. And then, um, yeah, if you find it useful, that's great. Yeah, no, it's like I said, it's awesome. I, I, Justin mentioned it and it was one of the tools that I think helped get to 23 million views. So I, I think that's great for brand building and so many other ways. So it's awesome having you on. Really appreciate all your insights, your honesty, and just your candor, man. It was, it was great getting to know you. And uh, thanks for being on the show. Yeah, right back at you, Ryan. Anytime you want me back, just let me know. Awesome. Thanks, Ryan. Take care. Thank you for spending the time with me today. I know that time is one of the most valuable resources, so I truly honor and appreciate you coming along this journey with me. One of the things that I wanna ask you is if you really truly enjoyed this and know someone that this can make an impact on, please share this episode with them. If you're on a journey for financial and lifestyle freedom, it is always exponentially better if we're building a tribe with like-minded people who are on the same journey. In addition, I have an amazing PDF for you that could be career changing in terms of the content. Essentially what it is are the top 10 questions that every big customer is asking behind closed doors that no one is telling you about. I'll put a link for it in the show notes. So check it out. It's my free gift for you for being a part of this launch and being a part of this journey with me. And I hope to see you soon.